Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is the Analyzing Anfield podcast on the Blood Red channel, bringing you the best tactical and statistical analysis of Liverpool FC. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Analyzing Anfield, your tactics and analytics podcast, courtesy of the Blood Red channel. I'm Josh Williams and I'm joined by Mo Stewart. Mo, how are you getting on, mate? Not bad, actually. Um, it's been a nice break having my life untethered to Liverpool matches and their results. Just being able to be a bit freer about what I decided to do with my time. And I think everyone needed a little bit of a reset, you know, and hopefully some of the lads on in the dressing room feel the same. So I'm refreshed and I hope they are too. Are you a man for international football or is that not your thing? Um, I kind of dabble, I would say. There are yeah. some that I mean, interest me more than others. Like... <clears throat> I definitely watched the uh, France against Netherlands game. That was uh, that was interesting. <laughs> uh, but uh, unfortunately, I missed um, Scotland against Spain last night. I, I might catch some highlights of that in a bit. But yeah, there are the occasional game that takes my interest. I have to say, more often than not, they aren't England games. Although to be fair, I did watch the first. I did watch the, the Italy game. I thought that was quite interesting as well. But yeah, I dabble. Yeah, I, I caught most of the Italy game as well. I think I, I become a totally different kind of international football fan when there's a major tournament on. But when it's <laughs> qualification and Nations League, and I find it a bit trickier to get myself engaged. Um, But yeah, club football has been placed on pause for the past two weeks, and now it is on the verge of returning. And for Liverpool, it is returning with a bang, really, isn't it? Um. We have quite a week coming up. We have Manchester City, Chelsea and Arsenal in the space of know, seven or eight days or something like that. Um, so we are definitely going to preview Manchester City to start with because that's a big game. It's always worth talking about those games, aren't they? And there's also a few transfer lines here and there that have kind of popped up over the past few days. So we're going to tackle them. But in terms of Manchester City, Mo. Before we get into it a bit deeper, how are you feeling ahead of the game? Is it optimism? Is it fear? <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't think it's as strong what either way, simply because it's so hard to predict what we are going to get. I think the, the nature of how Liverpool and Man City are with each other kind of, to a certain extent, throws form out of the window because the games that we play against each other, the way that they try to attack us and the way that we try to attack them is so unique compared to the rest of the teams each of us face. So it always ends up, to a certain extent, being the same kind of tactical kind of 
to and fro tennis match. But by the same token, I haven't been able to rely on the quality of our team much this season. So there is that trepidation that considering what they did just before the break, where they were tearing apart teams for fun, if we go into it undercooked and they are able to be at that level, then it could be dangerous. And because, as you say, you mentioned this big week, I think one of the most important things for Liverpool is that even if we do end up losing to Man City, it's not such a bad defeat that we can't recover because we still need to get points from those other two games. Yeah, I'm just looking at City's current form at the minute. They're actually in better form than I previously realised, really. They're unbeaten in 10. Um, two draws in there, and, and they've won the last six in a row. Um, and the last two games, 6-0 against Burnley. Okay, it's Burnley, it's, you know, it's domestic cup. 7-0 against RB Leipzig. So they've scored 13 goals in the past two games, which is uh, quite that. Without really. much breaking a sweat. Say that again. Without much breaking a sweat. Yeah, it exactly. Was, yeah. It was devastatingly easy a lot of the time. And obviously, Burnley uh top of the championship, so you can say their quality isn't quite at Premier League standard but essentially they are a Premier League team they are definitely coming into the Premier League so they had good form they had confidence but City broke them down easily and Leipzig weren't necessarily in a great moment within their Bundesliga standing but again they got a draw a creditable draw in the home leg and should have gone into that game expecting to be able to at least give City a run and again they were down early and as soon as you get down early and City sent some blood it was all over so that's kind of where my fear comes from, the fact that they have that in them. But I think what Leipzig and what Burnley were unable to do was trouble them defensively. And yeah. I think we'll be able to do a much better job of that than they did. Yeah, well, I've, I've actually just checked as well. And over those two games, Erling Haaland has scored eight times. Eight times, two games, mate. Absolutely yeah. ridiculous. And I saw all of the goals against Leipzig. And I can assume what the goals against Burnley were like. And they are literally all in the six-yard box. They're like absolute genuine tappings. But yeah. there's definitely an art to getting those tappings. And he's absolutely on his toes in the penalty box. You have, you have to give him that. But then at the same time, it's just a striker's dream, really, isn't it? Um, but yeah, in terms of how I feel going into the City, um. I think I am a tiny bit fearful simply because it's the Etihad and I always feel like they um, are able to open up, o- open us up that bit easier when they're at home. I don't know if the pitch is bigger or what, but it feels it. Um, but I, I, going into these games when Klopp faces Guardiola, I am always slightly cautiously optimistic simply because I do think Klopp is just ideally suited to facing this coach and we do have the personnel, I think we have the players, particularly in the front line, that are basically tailor-made to facing a Manchester City in that. Yeah. The kind of unpredictable, quick, direct, really good on the transition, difficult to cope with 1v1. And if you kind of leave them high up the pitch, City will want to commit players forward, but you just naturally are looking over your shoulder thinking to yourself, like, you know, if Nunes gets the ball here, I'm in trouble. If Jota gets the ball here, I'm in trouble. If Salah gets the ball here, I'm in trouble. 
And, um, you know, we proved yourself for me, you know, as part of that group. Now he's been replaced by Gakpo, really. And Gakpo, I think, is a lot more mobile in terms of his, his running power and things like that. So going into these games, it does always feel like Liverpool have particularly the attack and firepower to basically be a nightmare for, for a Guardiola team who are obsessed with, like, slow tempo and controlling the game at all times. Yeah, definitely. And there's a bravery about how we approach the game that, again, very few other teams are able to do. I'll give credit to Spurs. They're able to do it quite well. Yeah. Uh, the interesting thing for us is the way that we played in the home game, that kind of semi-mid-block where we weren't quite as high as we usually are and we were allowing them to have balls in certain areas. And then once we got into that certain point, that's when we kind of attacked them. Obviously, that's a tactic that probably suits better away from home than at home anyway. So I wouldn't be surprised to see that again. The difference is, is that I think our counter-attack game is better now than it was at that point in the season. So maybe that gives Klopp a little bit more freedom or license to maybe take a few more chances in that area. Yeah, I think that the mid-block at the time, at at the time, I think Liverpool was still very much doing the high press and Klopp was still pushing on with that almost a bit naively for me. We got to a point eventually further down the line and we touched on it on this podcast where we started to adopt more of a mid-block. Um, and I think, I, I agree with you, I think I think we will take that into the Etihad. I don't think we will engage in the high press. City and Guardiola are just the masters of getting out of the first phase. So for Liverpool to do that, we have to be absolutely on it in terms of like regaining the ball and cutting off holes and legs, recovery pace in the midfield and things like that. And we don't really have that this season. So I would welcome an approach that involves a bit more of a compact block in the middle third, kind of hopefully force them into some sort of mistake, win the ball around the middle third, and then immediately go for the throw, basically. I I, I like it when when Liverpool adopt that kind of approach at the Etihad. And I feel like we have done that a few times. But I think off the top of my head, our Etihad record is pretty bad, even though I feel like when we go there, we do usually compete pretty well. Yeah. No, I think the the weird quirk of this kind of Klopp Guardiola, the Liverpool Man City version of Klopp versus Guardiola, is that both men has only got one away win, and Klopp's was the first one. Uh, and then there's um, the, uh, the Champions League. Oh, well, you, outside the Champions the Premier League. League. Oh yeah, Premier League. I'm talking. So yeah. the the four one where Firmino score, we're three nil up early, and then Skull bangs one in in the second half. I think that's the only time in the league Klopp's won at the Etihad. And for Guardiola, um, obviously there was the uh, COVID season game that did not go very well for Liverpool, in which Phil Foden dances yeah. around in circles. <laughs> and that's the, those are the only away wins. Obviously, City had the nil-nil where Mahrez misses the late penalty that probably would have been one. And Liverpool have had a few near misses, a few good performances that didn't quite turn into wins in that time. But... Generally, both home teams are strong enough to get over the line. That's how it goes. And a good performance normally means a battle and draw. Uh, I think most Liverpool fans would take that right now. I know I probably would with a view to those games coming up. But um, it's going to be a tough game, whatever. Analyzing Anfield on the Blood Red Channel. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices 
down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Yeah, I'm just I'm just looking at Guardiola's managerial record here, actually. And he's um he's faced Klopp more than any other coach during his managerial career. He's faced him twenty seven times. And upon quick glance, I think Klopp is the only man who has more wins than losses over Guardiola. Uh, of those twenty seven meetings, Guardiola's won ten. Klopp has won twelve. And we've had five draws as well. And uh, if you look at like all of their managerial opponents, Guardiola's faced at least 10 times. His record against Klopp is about 1.3 points per match. I think the second worst is against Tuchel. In fact, no, it's against Mourinho, 1.7 points per match. And then Tuchel, 1.9. And again, Klopp is the only coach to to, to win double figures against Guardiola with, with 12. The next most wins any coach has against Guardiola is seven, and that was Mourinho. You've got Pochettino with four, Arsene Wenger with three. Don't know when them three happened. <laughs> Thomas Tuchel with three. Um, but yeah, Klopp just seems to have an upper hand, I think, when it comes to this. And I do think it stems from just going right the way back to tactical identities of what... Yeah. Klopp was at the very beginning as like this transition obsessed counter attacking pressing coach compared to Guardiola who who was always being this possession obsessed serene super slow tempo everything is under control kind of coach and it, I, it do you know what it reminds me of this is kind of a weird a weird example it reminds me of I don't know if you've seen a dark nightmare yes uh, the film. Have you seen when the Joker is kind of given the gun to Harvey Dent in the bed and he says something along the lines of like, introduce a little anarchy, introduce yeah. a little chaos. It's kind of like that. Klopp is kind of the chaos agent. <laughs> 100%. Yeah. Our, our, our producers there just said, what a reference. <laughs> <laughs> in the chat there. But I don't know. It's, it's just a weird thing that reminds me of it when I watch the scene. I remember just thinking to myself, that's Klopp and Guardiola with that. I don't know. That just sums up my football obsessed brain, I suppose. But that is bad. So, I mean, I'm not. Sh- I, I I think Klopp's probably closer to the Joker than um, Guardiola is to Harvey Dent or even <laughs> that man. Yeah. But yeah, I do love it, and I think it, you're right. There is a fundamental difference. I've always noticed it in how they play. I think the way I always class it is that Guardiola looks for perfection, whereas Klopp understands that perfection is to be tried to attain, but it's kind of impossible. So you need to have a plan. For when that doesn't happen, and it's all what what happens after you've been smacked in the face. How do you recover from those problems? And that has always been for me the a fundamental difference is that Klopp's accepting of the fact that things will go wrong, whether you want them to or not. You can't game plan all errors and mistakes, or even good play from your opponents out of a football match. Because if you could, you'd be playing chess. Yeah, I think the bottom line is for me with Guardiola. It, everything just comes back to c- control. He, he wants total control of everything, and it's a lot easier to establish total control 
when the opposition essentially just lie down, roll over for you, basically. Um, and I think Klopp has always been inclined to essentially have a go when it comes to facing Guardiola, and he, he will field more attacking players than expected. He'll make Guardiola think about going the opposite way. And, as I said, just introduce a little chaos into Guardiola's controlling, perfect master plan type thing. And um, City just don't tend to, to do quite well against that. Uh, but if we look at earlier in the season, obviously we have already faced City once and we did beat them. As you said there, that we, we touched on a, a mid-block that we used. But I wanted to touch on how City approached the game because it was a really curious tactical move I felt at the time um, I am going to speak about it this week on Redman TV actually but it kind of did I thought it fitted the theme really of this Guardiola overthinking narrative yeah. uh, I'm not sure where you stand on that one Mo. No I agree and I think that it's a product of what we were just saying the fact that Klopp does things that no other well, that not only other teams don't do that potentially could be Almost like the um, the key weakness in his plan is that, like I say, if you're trying to control everything, introduce some unpredictability because that's a lot harder to control. And when you ally that with not only quality, but also a telepathy, as we had with our front players, that's when it starts to get really interesting. And because Guardiola has such a faith in his ability to outthink most other managers and most other schemes, he's always going to try something. He's always going to think, well, yes, maybe everyone else will call me crazy for doing this, but if it works, they'll call me a genius. And I mean, I'm not saying that he's more obsessed with what people think than the actual game itself, but I think that's kind of the mindset he's going with. It's like, I'm always willing to risk it going right rather than fear it going wrong. But then sometimes you see some of those moves where he's trying to be or appears in his mind to be proactive. But what he's actually doing is creating another problem elsewhere that maybe he didn't anticipate. And I think there's also the... Liverpool can kind of sometimes do a little bit themselves because we have the impression that we're always the same. It's always 4-3-3 with the front three. But I remember the very first time that we saw Salah, Mane, Firmino and Jota was away at the Etihad. And yeah. I remember, the, I think that game was another draw. I think it was 1-1. But yeah, they took a long time for them to work out what was going on. And for the first half, we were very much on top in that game. And I think the ability of us to change a little bit and throw a lot, kind of almost leads him into thinking that, well, maybe I should do that. Maybe he thinks he is still playing chess. It's like, well, if you're on the attack, I'm on the attack. But it doesn't seem to quite work out because a lot of the time with his moves, you are taking away the strengths of some of your players. Like we say with De Bruyne, when you were having him rather than being more central, when you're asking him to do positions from like a wide outside and trying to come in and try to draw extra men over and stuff like that, you're kind of eliminating his ability to play the game as he sees it in front of him. And he's such a quality player that he can do that and he can be devastating at it. Yeah, I'm glad you've touched on that, actually, that away performance, because that's one of my favourite Liverpool games, actually, in terms of, like, tactics, at least. Because it really caught me off guard at the time. And I think at that point, Guardiola was beginning to have some success against Liverpool, building with a back six, 
and I think he he started to use four two three one specifically to face Liverpool at the time. Mm-hmm. And out of nowhere, Klopp just deployed four forwards, and it really did catch him off guard for the first half. We should have been a few goals up, I think. Yeah. Um, but we will touch on that in a minute, actually, because I do think there's the prospect of us potentially going down a similar route again this time, if you consider the players that we've got available. Yeah. But yeah, in terms of Guardiola, kind of like overthinking and things like that, that narrative, it's an interesting one. But if you, if you look at what he did when he last came to Anfield, it was a back three. And when you field a back three, you would normally field wing-backs. And he did technically field wing-backs but at no point were they in the back position. <laughs> so it was just kind of a back three, a front two in front of the back three. Sorry, hang on, let's start again. It was a back three, then a midfield two, and then a four, and then a one. Yeah. Right, so you had a back three and your two wing backs were João Cancelo and Phil Foden. Phil Foden in particular just never came back into his own half. No. Um, you had Bernardo Silva and Rodri as your midfield two, and they kind of helped the back three a little bit. And then you, you for the most part of the game, you had a kind of like a, an attacking midfield bank of four consisting of Cancelo, De Bruyne, Gundogan, and Foden behind behind Haaland. Um, and I think when Guardiola does this, I think on the tactics board probably does make a lot of sense and I can I can see the logic behind why he did it specifically because on his left Liverpool's right what it did do was it allowed Gundogan Bernardo Silva and Foden to form like a triangle around Liverpool's weakest area really which is around Trent Trent didn't play with Milner but if you if you can create that that's a problem for Liverpool. You know, everyone targets Liverpool's right side. Guardiola did the same. Um, so I can see why, on paper at least, he's, may, he's maybe done that. What I think sometimes causes problems for him is it's sometimes what he can ask his players to do is so complex that they almost have to think on the... On, and he can't just do things on the fly and... Um, Sometimes it can almost be a bit too much for him to take, and I think this this is kind of why he needs the very best ingredients, needs the very best players. Because if you ask, I'm not going to name any names, but if if you ask a an average Premier League player, let's say to to do things like that, they'll just probably collapse. Um, so I can see where the narrative comes from because I do think sometimes he's come up with plans that are so perfect on a tactics board, but when they're getting executed by humans. It's it's just confusing, isn't it? It is. I mean, you can know your players, and for example, the the, the that whole three two four one formation is relying on the three and the two having the technical ability to be able to pass through a press because they are going to be put under increasing pressure without having those wide outlets closer to them, and that would be the been Liverpool's plan as soon as they saw that formation. But Guardiola's like, I know these guys, they're great technical players, they can pass through it. But then you add in the atmosphere and the, the, the heightened the sense of the game, and then all of a sudden those things become a lot more difficult. And I think that was also a part of the problem with Guardiola's plan, because 
if you look at the actual situations they created, they were able to get quite a few overloads, but they didn't. There were times when all they needed to do was play a square ball across the mid, the pitch towards Haaland, and he would have had an opportunity to either run in on goal or have a shot. But they didn't. They got into those positions and then they either passed it back around or tried to find another open. It was like, this is what you were doing that for. It's there. Do it. But as yeah. you say, there's too much in their heads. Whereas <clears> if you're playing free-flowing football, you see Haaland in space with not much in front of him. You give him the ball as soon as he can. And Again, when you're trying to ask players to do too many things, particularly ones they aren't used to, sometimes in the heat of those moments, it can break down. And when you're playing a game against an opponent you know so well, as we've said, with such high quality, as we've said, you need to take advantage of every single little mistake. Think about the goal that won that game. One little mistake from Cancelo. Salah, goal, one nil. Thank you. Yeah, well, th- this is kind of what I I felt they got wrong during the game. I think the formation that I've just touched on defensively was a bit of an issue for them. But with the ball, as I said, I do think it made some sense. The reason it, it kind of went wrong for me, and you've just kind of touched on it, is if there's one thing Liverpool have struggled with all season, it has been probably defending the transition and... Once we get bypassed, we're out of the game. The, the recovery pace has been useless and it's been really easy to go from A to B when it comes to cutting through Liverpool. I feel like City, kind of in keeping with Guardiola, the control, trying to keep Anfield quiet maybe, I feel like they let us off the hook so yes. much at Anfield when it comes to you can cut us open if you keep going forward, but it was kind of like, no, we don't want it to turn into a basketball game, pass it backwards or pass it sideways or something like that. And I can understand if that was your approach of live against Liverpool years gone by. But if they'd have turned the the game earlier this season into a basketball game, I do think they'd have beat us because we, we haven't handled it this season. So they kind of played into our hands where we could kind of always assume this block no matter where the ball was no matter where they were and like that they always let us form this block and then try to break us down and we could just we just defended it pretty well i think we kept a clean sheet didn't we yeah um and we ended up doing them the opposite way when when salad takes advantage of of cancelo so it would have been interesting to see if guardiola would have used the same system again but maybe just execute it in a different way because that would have kind of mm-hmm. emphasised his faith in him initially getting it right, even though he lost. But well, I mean, Phil Foden was... is now injured and yeah. Castello is gone. So he can't, really <laughs> do, he can't really do it again, can he? Well, there was also, we forget about the League Cup game and <clears throat> just after the World Cup break. And I know that obviously there was significant changes to the first team, but Liverpool were pretty strong when you look at the team, apart from maybe... Fabio Carvalho in and Milner are right back in Kelleher. The rest of the guys, well, I suppose Bicetic to that point was a, a change. But when you look at um, Man City, they had Rico Lewis doing the kind of midfield, not all right back job. So you had Akanji, Laporte and Ake as the three. And then you could have him kind of joining in with Rodri in midfield 
And then you've got De Bruyne, Gundogan, Mahrez and Cole Palmer. And then you've got Haaland. And it wasn't quite the same. It was a little, a little bit more of a, a three in midfield with De Bruyne kind of floating in the front of Lewis, Rodri and Gundogan. But it was some of the same principles. And I mean, obviously they won that game. And Haaland did score in that game. It's the only time he scored against us so far for City. So whether or not that hybrid type version of it that looked a little bit more successful will be what they do. But even in that game, I mean, they took the lead twice, we came back twice, and then they won it on a set piece. So we were still dangerous, whatever they've done. Yeah. I mean, you mentioned earlier in terms of the 4-4-2 that we used a few years back. Would you use it here or would you go with a midfield three? Um, I would be tempted to use it more now the news has come out today that Thiago is probably not going to make it at any yeah. stage. If I'd have had him for the bench, then I'd probably be more leaning towards the traditional. But, the, I mean, what does that look like in reality? Does that look like Fabinho and Henderson playing as the double pivots with four forwards in front of them? Could that be another problem that we have in terms of energy? I think without Bicetic in there, it becomes a little bit more difficult to make a case for that because I think him with either of those two, and I'm confident it can work, the two of them, even with this prolonged break, it still feels a little bit of a risk based on the season we've seen. Then you have to throw Naby Keita into the mix, as I always tend to do at these points, uh, who actually scored, believe it or not, in the midweek for Guinea. Um, Apparently, yeah, he had a good international break, actually. Yeah, he did. And they took him off at half-time in the second game. He wasn't substituted off because he was injured. They took him off to to kind of give him a little bit of a break, which I like. So, again, if you are playing that system, he does suit it better. But then the problem we've seen with Cater is the lapses of concentration that he has at times in a game like this can potentially be punished. But then I also remember him playing very well against Man City in the FA Cup semi-final last season. So I think it's a live option for Klopp that maybe he will be doing it in training, testing it out. I think, to be honest, one of the keys to it is Diogo Jota and how he's feeling. Because I think... You can well, make it up for me, you know, being the fourth, but I think it probably would be Jota if they are going to go for four. He's still not quite hitting it. Like, I was so disappointed that he only got three minutes for Portugal against Liechtenstein and Luxembourg, in which they scored 10 goals. They couldn't even throw him on for more than three minutes. That would have been the perfect opportunity for him to score a goal, maybe even two or three start to feel like himself again, and then we could have scraped the benefits. But no, Martinez had to appease Ronaldo. Analyzing Anfield on the Blood Red Channel. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. 
Learn more at marines.com. Yeah, I know. I mean, there's two ways of looking at that, really. I suppose you could say he's had a rest, um, but whether he needs the rest, I think he needs to sharp us up, sharpen us about everything, doesn't he? Um, but yeah, if you, if you look at Liverpool's Liverpool's current makeup at the minute, I just think we, we kind of are in a position whereby the our fourth attacker probably does just have a bit more quality about his game than our third midfielder yeah. at the minute. Um, our third midfielder at the minute is going into this game, if we play three, is probably going to be maybe Elliot, maybe Keita, whereas our fourth attacker is probably going to be Jota. Um, and I think if you, th- if you think about what I've just touched on there with Guardiola, Manchester City, and the dynamic that they pose, Jota's re- very well suited to what you have to do to get points from a City team. So I think it's it's definitely a question mark for Klopp, that one. Mm-hmm. Um, I also want to touch on, obviously, we're, we're now 26 or so games into the season. Haaland and Nunes both arrived in the summer. <laughs> um, both big fees, both strikers. Um, what have you made of how they've fared because they've kind of they've, well they have they've been used in different ways yeah Highland has been used as he is which is a striker who never touches the ball will score millions and Nunes has kind of ended up as a wide forward whether that would have happened if Diaz was fit or not I don't know but it's interesting to, to follow how they've fared it is I think obviously the difference in forms of the teams that they're in does make a significant difference. I think Nunes yeah. has had a lot more problems to solve and not just in terms of having more than one position on the pitch, but in terms of times where he's playing behind two in midfield, he's playing behind three in midfield, he's playing behind players in good form, he's playing behind players in bad form. So, and he, obviously he, that all makes a difference when you are trying to get used to the, your teammates and your system. For Haaland, <clears throat> his, um, his playbook is a lot shorter. <laughs> it's stay here when ball comes, put it towards goal. Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm being a bit clever about that, but it's not a lot more than that. And he is so damn good at doing that. I mean, it's almost churlish to ask him to do anything else, even though I sometimes would like him to see him do a bit more. But whether or not he's been successful, I... I may be mischievously previously said that there are things that they wanted him to do that he hasn't quite done. And going back to the ideology of Guardiola, what I mean by that is that a signing like Haaland, a guy who's such a goal machine, is meant to be the last piece of a jigsaw. All those games previously where they've struggled to draws, which they will occasionally throw in, he's meant to go them over the line in those games and obviously in the Champions League. They have still had games where they haven't scored. They have still had games where they've had those clunky attacks when he's been on the pitch. So he hasn't eliminated that completely. But part of that, for my money, is because it's impossible to completely eliminate that because you can't eliminate all doubt from football. So that doesn't mean to say that he hasn't done his job. He very much has done his job. And he may well be the difference in the Champions League. For Liverpool, I think they are more concerned about how Nunes is going to fit into the future because so much around him is also changing. So you can afford to have a little bit more of a longer-term view on it. 
Whereas I think for Harlem, because of how he is as a player, if he wasn't scoring goals, he would have been judged very harshly. But he's doing the best. He is, yeah. Um, I mean, if you look at the numbers behind behind each player's season, they are interesting so far because Nunes is very much the shot guy. Nunes is posting so many efforts on goal on an, on a per ninety basis. It's quite it's quite crazy to be honest. So so far this season, the Premier League, he's averaging five point one shots per ninety. That is a lot. Um, second best is. Mitrovic, funnily enough, on four. That's a full shot fewer than than top, which is Nunes. Then you've got Gabriel Jesus on 3.7, and then you've got Erling Haaland on 3.6. So Haaland, 3.6 shots per 90. Nunes, 5.1. So that's quite a gap, and that's I would have been quite surprised by that gap. And then you look at um, missing big chances. Now a big chance is whatever you're picturing in your head in your head now. Probably it's a shot that you should probably score. Um and most people would think, well, Nunes has missed all kinds, and he has. Um <laughs> he's missed seventeen, Nunes, which is the second most in the Premier League behind Haaland. Oh. Haaland has missed twenty, believe it or not. Um and just just to kind of capture how how much Nunes is shooting compared to Haaland. Nunes is currently nine shots behind Haaland total. And that's despite Haaland playing about 800 minutes more. Wow. Um, so this is kind of why I think Nunes eventually is going to explode. I, I do think he'll have like a, a bit of a Luis Suarez season, to be honest, where he scores like 30 or something like that. Because he's got the... He's he's getting the chances. He's he's in the danger areas. He is a magnet for the chances, and he's very quick, very physical, tall, good in the air, and he's just he's what you want really. He's he's probably the closest possible thing really to Haaland. Um, but Haaland has also just found the net a lot, and um, he scored twenty eight times so far, whereas Nunes has eight in the Premier League. So the conversion rate there is very, very different. And Nunes is underperforming expected goals by about two goals. Haaland is overperforming expected goals by about seven. So his finishing has been a lot more on point. Yeah. Uh, and it's a shame that he's probably going to beat Mo Salah's record, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it is. And I mean, <laughs> <laughs> it, I don't know. I think obviously records are always going to be broken. That's the nature of the beast. There's a, people thought that the previous record was it Andy Cole's. I remember when that still was set. I'm that old, and I did think that was going to stand for a long time. And yet, Salah's only stood for a few years. But I think that it was something that was predicted. If you look at the way he's played, pretty much everywhere else he's been. I know sometimes you do get a, a kind of sniffiness over here in the Premier League. It's like, oh well, he's done it well over there, but can he do it over here? I really don't think there was that much of that with him. I think most people just kind of knew, no, this guy's going to tear it up wherever he goes. And so it's been proven. I, When it comes to Nunes, I like the fact that he has much more points to his game because what it says to me is, is that every time our team improves, I think he's going to improve. I think when we get new players in who suit the way we play and maybe make us more efficient in what we do, 
he's going to get more efficient. And yeah, the whole <clears throat> Harlan being a machine when it comes to finishing, that's kind of his thing and that works in that City team. I think Nunes being a menace works in, in what we're trying to do. And I think, as I say, the more we bring in a little bit more talent and stability, the better I think he's going to look. Yeah, what I will say on that as well is I, I don't overly, I can't picture Haaland playing on the wing. You know the way Nunes has this season yeah. and he's done it quite well and he scored a fair few goals as well. I cannot picture Haaland as a wide forward. I just don't, it's just not him. Um, and I have said all season, to be fair, I still think Nunes is a central striker. Um, but the fact he can do that yeah, just bodes well for Liverpool being able to shapeshift and things like that. Um, but yeah, before we move on to like um, tactical uh, transfer stuff, I've got, I've got a question for you, Mo. In terms of the next week then, three games against Arsenal, City and Chelsea, how many points result in you having a smile on your face? <laughs> um, a minimum of five, I think, for me. Okay. I would, I would be if we went five would mean going unbeaten, which would be great, and I think that would give us a real lift. I think I can take us losing one if we win the other two. I think the hardest way to do that, and still the most likely way to do that, is to lose to City and then beat Chelsea and Arsenal. And I say that knowing that Arsenal have been better than City in the league this season, I just think that for Arsenal, Anfield is still a thing. It's still a psychological, probably the last big psychological barrier for them to hurdle. Because, uh, I mean, I said it on on the uh, Talking Reds on the Anfield Wrap this morning, but Anfield is where good Arsenal teams have gone to die for most (laughs) of the last decade. (laughs) <laughs> and they will know this because all of them have the scars. I mean, even last year in the League Cup, like they got the nil-nil at Anfield despite being down to 10 men. They celebrated. They knew they shouldn't have celebrated because we went in the second leg and we, and we went and won on their place. So psychologically, we are still that level above. I think this season, it's been a kind of a transition for both teams of kind of like, we're trying to hold on to our elite level and they are coming into that elite level. So if they can get a result at Anfield, I think that will be the impetus for them going forward. But I still think it's going to be difficult for them because of what they know, particularly if we can make it a bear pit and get a lead. And I know that they've come back from games previously, but again, when you add that extra layer of sauce onto it, particularly we're playing on the Sunday Man City will have already played. They might have been able to put some extra pressure on them. Because I think the pressure is on us in these three games, but it's also on all three of our opponents for differing reasons. Obviously, the two title challenges we're playing. And Chelsea, I mean, God knows what's going through their minds right now with all of the different managerial changes that's happening and whether or not that's kind of making uh, Todd Bowley get uh, itchy trigger fingers. So there's lots of um, different pressures going on for Chelsea. So we aren't the only ones who are going into this with nerves and we're with a lot to prove and a lot on the line. And that's why I said at the top of the show, if we do lose to City, it can't be a whooping. It can't be a demoralising game where we've gifted them goals 
and really started to kind of accentuate some of the worst traits of this season. If it's a defeat, let it be a 2-1 where there's a contentious decision and we can come out with it feeling a little bit of credit. Like we are still building forwards. And then we can go to Stamford Bridge on Tuesday night and really have a good go at them. Because I do think that we can win there. And if we do win there, then that will kind of put the fear, a little bit more of fear, maybe only an extra percent into Arsenal. And that might be all it takes. Analyzing Anfield on the Blood Red Channel. Yeah, it's funny that you mentioned there with the Arsenal scars, actually, that it, even the coach has a scar. Yeah. Well, more than one, actually, to be honest. I think he, he obviously has a history with City for a start, uh, and City don't tend to do particularly well at Anfield. Arteta came to Anfield and argued with Klopp, and then seconds later conceded. And as a player, I th- I'm pretty sure he's come out and said the only time in his career where he... It was a Spanish phrase, a Spanish phrase that kind of suggested that you are stuck in the mud. Yeah. And he said, the only time I've ever felt like that is Anfield. So it's quite funny that Arsenal do seem haunted by the police and it'll be interesting to see whether they turn up or not, basically. Well, I mean, um, have you seen the documentary they did where he was playing them, you never walk alone in training? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, they've, they've almost tried everything. And so far, none of them have worked. So, I mean, we talk about um, Guardiola getting into his head when he's facing Liverpool. Again, Arteta was next to him in the, probably in a lot of those same meetings. So whether or not he was sitting there thinking, I shouldn't let that happen to me, or whether or not he was thinking, well, hey, maybe he's right. Maybe he was agreeing with him all those times. We'll have to wait and see. Yeah. I mean, before we move on, we, we will, because it's a big game, we, we will do a prediction. So in terms of the City game, unbiased, what are you saying? Repeat last season, 2-2. Two, two. <laughs> okay. I'm going to say reluctantly a 2-1 loss. But I do think, as I said earlier, Liverpool have the tools here that you need to win at the Etihad. So I do think that is a possibility as well. But um, logic just suggests that... <laughs> City are going to be able to open us up quite a few times, but I don't know. We'll see what happens. In terms of the transfer market, uh, we have been linked with a few names. One of them is Evan Ndike, a centre-back who is a free transfer, free agent at the end of the season, I think. And Liverpool are reportedly interested. Have you seen him play, Mo? What are your thoughts on him? I have seen him play. Um, I'm surprised that Frankfurt have let him run his contract down to this point, although they have done that notably with a couple of other players. Uh, Kostic left on a free last season, and I think Daichi Kamada is also... I think he's one of the more impressive uh, defenders in the, in the Bundesliga. I think the other thing that I notice about him, or the thing I think people who maybe haven't seen him play will be perked up about, <clears throat> he's left-footed. I was going to say that, yeah. He's very, very tall. And he has good recovery pace. So just as a baseline, I think those three things are really what we want in our next centre-back. He's also very good in the air, but has good passing ability. On short, he's not going to be doing the long bombs that you get from Virgil. But he does have the ability to keep possession ticking over. I think 
another thing that he's noted for is his one-on-ones. So when you think about the idea of pairing him with someone like Ibu, it does feel like it could potentially be a lockdown kind of defence for a long time to come. In terms of a potentially um, complementary partnership, they look like they could work very well. I'm su- not surprised Liverpool are linked with players who are going to be on free transfers. I do think that at least yeah. one of the transfers we make this season probably will be like that. So it makes sense in a lot of ways for me. Yeah, I mean, I, I would like to watch him a bit more, but just just based on the basics, he does look like a relatively sensible target. Obviously, you've just said there he's left-footed. Liverpool have five centre-backs at the minute. Every one of them is right-footed. And if we have a left-footer, you could argue that's kind of minutes on the left side of the fence where Van Dijk can actually get rested. Because he just, to be fair to him, I know he's, dropped off a little bit but he plays so often mate and since he's returned from this serious injury he's played so often he just never presents it with a break and that's just because we can't really do without him this lad would would allow us to maybe give give Van Dijk some minutes on the bench if he needs it and um, it'd add a different element to our build up play because he's left footed as you say he's 23 so he's a good age he's about 6 foot 3 good height and his actual attacking returns, I took note of. Uh, last season in the Bundesliga, he scored for and assisted for, which is really not bad for the centre-back. Nice. season before, he scored three, assisted one. Um, and his availability as well looks good. Yes. Last season, he made 32 starts. So far this season, it's 24. Uh, past three seasons including this season already, he's accumulated at least 2,000 minutes. Mm-hmm. So, looks like he's he's available pretty often. So, And as you say, with us needing quite a midfield overhaul, we do need funds for that area of the pitch. So, if we can save a bit of, a bit of money by getting in a freebie, it's never free, is it? But um, in terms of like a transfer fee, and I think he only earns about 23 grand a week, uh, only, I mean, I'd happily. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. 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 reality slaps you in the face a little bit there. <laughs> yeah, but believe it or not, they're not paying me that much to do this podcast, sadly. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, he looks like a reasonable target to me. So I look into him a bit more, like, but I'm, 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 I've got no real objections to that one. The other not... thing, sorry, I'll just go on. Yeah, go on. Thing about him is that he can play a left back. So in terms yeah. of um, potential transfer funds, I know obviously there's talk maybe that one of Matip and Gomez may well be on the block. If he can be... Simicast, replace- will. Well, this is what I was going to say. If he can be a replacement um, left-back, then that puts Simicast in the picture as well. And it'll be interesting to see who... I think they'll, some of that will be de- dependent on the, which of the players' offers come in for. But if you've got someone like that who can do both roles, it gives you a bit more flexibility, I think. Yeah, another transfer link is James Ward-Prowse. Um, quite an interesting one. I do think he's probably deserving of a move. Maybe he's probably missed that boat. But with Southampton 20th in the Premier League, he can't play in the Championship, James Ward-Prowse. He's, he's much better than that. So, but But in terms of Liverpool level, Probably a few question marks there. So what are your thoughts on that link? I think this is very interesting to me for a lot of reasons. 
One, because the initial reporting was Liverpool are scouting him. Now, the idea of Liverpool scouting a player in his 11th season in the Premier League does sound a little bit weird, but <laughs> then you kind of dug a little bit deeper into it. And if you look at his numbers for this season, there's a very marked difference between under Ralph Hasenhutl and since Ralph Hasenhutl because he was very, very much the cornerstone of Hasenhutl's whole game plan, not only in terms of leading press, but in terms of angles, but in terms of his ability to be the passing player alongside Honorio Romeo, who was a destroyer. And Romeo left. Southampton didn't really start to look that great under Hasenhutl. He then left. And since then, his role has changed and his numbers haven't been as good. So maybe that scouting is trying to work out why he's not as good and can he be as good as he was again in a better team? Because the kind of things that you don't see within the stats sheet are the parts that I find interesting about him as a player for Liverpool. Because not only just in terms of like the pressing bits, which are still quite hard to quantify, the numbers aren't as widely available. I think in terms of attitude, I think he's, he's I've, I've seen him described as a secret shithouse, which means that <laughs> he's very good at getting under other players' skin without necessarily getting all of the um, yellow cards and what have you. And I think we need more of that. I think that's the kind of thing that James Milner's still around for. So I think in terms of replacing some of the personality and the attitudes and the intangibles, in the dressing room, I think it's an interesting move. But I do think it's one that we would only seriously consider if there was some relegation discount. Because as far as I'm aware, he's still contracted till 2026. So that's another three years on his deal. He's 28 now. And I know that we were talking last year, last week about 28-year-old midfielders and all that kind of stuff. Uh, He's about to play his 400th game for Southampton. And as I said, it's his 11th season in the Premier League. So he's got a few more miles in his clock than Jao Paulinho, put it that way. <laughs> and then when you add into the fact, the things that he does really well, obviously he's such a dangerous man from set pieces. We kind of have people doing that already. Like yeah. how many of the other open play uh, shot and goal creating actions is he able to do? And I just had a quick look there on FP Ref while I was talking. His pass completion is not very good. Like, it's in the 20th percentile, which, again, might be representative of where the team are right now. But, I mean, it's kind of a fundamental part of a Liverpool midfielder. So, I don't know. I can see a world where it's a relegation kind of Shakiri low-risk, low-reward type grab. Outside of that, I'm sceptical about how much he could contribute to us. Yeah. No, I think you've, you've summed that up pretty well to be honest I do like him as a player I've got absolutely nothing against him I am a fan of him I think he he, he does very well for Southampton one of their talisman players obviously we know he's insane the free kicks I think he's one short now of Beckham's Premier League record Um, he's always 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 available like his availability is outstanding I think over the past three and a half seasons he's failed to feature in two games I think that's from a possible 140 odd something like that two games mate so he's always on the pitch 
Uh, I think he wears the captain's armband now. So as you say, he's a he's a big character and things like that. Um, he also ticks the homegrown thing, which yeah, is yeah. a growing dilemma maybe for Liverpool. Mm-hmm. And I think it's interesting that we're getting linked with Mount, Mount, homegrown, Bellingham, homegrown, Levi Colwell at Chelsea, currently on loan at Brighton as a centre half, homegrown. So he would help in that regard. And I also want to throw in a curveball that if he was in the squad and Trent needs a rest, I can absolutely see him as a right back in this Liverpool system. Um, <laughs> I can I can just see those deliveries, mate. I can just see it. Um, now that is interesting. Yeah, because, yeah. Again, I think if you look at the things that he's not good at and the things that maybe Trent isn't good at, they probably do overlap quite a lot. Like, generally, his tackling numbers are down, but when he's at his best, he's very good at that. Um, again, I think you look at one-on-ones, that's probably an area where he's not as good. But all of the things that he does well as on the pitch, he could quite easily be able to do them from a Liverpool right-back perspective. Because, as you say, we've seen Trent in midfield when we're building up play anyway. And he's not rapid, but... He is normally able to get back in uh, transition, counterattacks, those kind of things. So it might be like it's a wild card. It might work. You don't know. Yeah, it's just like a, a little element that I, that crossed my mind when I seen his name. Um, but I do, I do agree with you that I think overall, although he's a, he's a, I've got nothing really against him as a player. I, I would hope that Liverpool can probably get better. Um, as you say, he's 28, got a lot of minutes on the clock. I would be interested to see what kind of prices put out there if Southampton do get relegated. Um, but overall, just be, uh, yeah, I just feel like Liverpool could maybe. I mean, to be fair to him, he's got he's got some 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 few seasons experience of Haas and under his belt as well, and you could argue that 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 kind of pressing game is ingrained into his his approach. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, it's it's a weird one. As I said, I do I don't like him as a player, but whether he would I want him to, a twenty eight year old to come to Liverpool when Liverpool's midfield department is already shattered and we need it to be younger. Yeah. Um he's already on hundred grand a week as well at Southampton at the minute. Until twenty twenty six. So he's got three years left on that contract. So I think it's a long shot personally, but I can see I can see why it would be a thing potentially. Um but yeah, we will we will round it up there, I think. Um but before we do, I suppose we do have some kind of like analysing Anfield news, I suppose. Not really sure how to to broach the situation, to be honest, but um I, I don't know, for, for the next few weeks slash months potentially Mo is not going to be appearing on the pod. Um not sure how else to say. This, <laughs> I mean, yeah. Mo, you got anything that you want to? <laughs> um, yeah, it's 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 it, it's a lot up in the air. Put it that way. Um, it's a yeah, real shame. Way it, yeah. It's a real shame to be honest with you because I've not I've loved doing this show so much. I feel like of all the shows I've done across the blood red time in my couple of years here, this is where I felt most home. I felt like I found my niche here. I've enjoyed doing this with you. I've enjoyed chatting with the the fans when we do our Q and As. And I do feel like, based on what I've seen in some of the comments on previous shows, I will be missed. And 
<laughs> if you do feel that way, don't be shy in letting us know. Um, but yeah, as I say, the, we, we can't say too much because we don't know. This is brutally honest, but what I can say for sure is that I've enjoyed every single minute and every single show I've been on here. So thank you for having me. Yeah, I mean, we, we do absolutely check the comments and I, I do every single week on like YouTube and things like that, especially. And I know that the feedback has been really good. And to be honest, I would doubt that this is the last appearance you will make on this podcast, if I'm honest. But as you say, up in the air is a good way of putting it in terms of like short term and the near future. And if anyone, I suppose, has anyone that they would like me to contact to potentially get on the podcast as a guest for a one-off week or something like that, give me a shout in the comments. I'll have a look at those. But yeah, up in the air is is the headline, I think. So um, we'll kind of leave it there. Very vague. Apologies for that, but it's I suppose it's the best way. As unpredictable as this Liverpool season. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I mean, it sums up the campaign, really, doesn't it? Uh, But yeah, Mo. Thanks for joining us, mate, and I'm sure you will be back involved in some way soon, hopefully. Yeah. Fingers crossed, mate, and fingers crossed for some Liverpool wins in the future. For whatever you're doing, hopefully you're still talking about them. Yeah, yeah, hopefully. So uh, thanks for joining us. Uh, thanks for tuning in, listeners, and we will probably see you next week, uh, but that's up in the air as well. <laughs> so... Uh, <laughs> I don't know, look out for the name analyzing that field, but uh, yeah, it's up in the air at the minute. You've been listening to the Analyzing Anfield podcast on the Blood Red channel.